This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I think it was 30 years ago, the fall that I began teaching at Catholic University. I was sitting around my family lunch table with my wife, and at that point we had three kids, a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and probably about a six-month-old. And our three-year-old daughter was going around the room um, identifying, this is just how three-year-olds start to think, identifying everyone by gender at the table. She thought it was a useful thing to do. So daddy's a boy, mommy's a girl, Rachel, her older sister, is a girl, Paul, her baby brother, is a boy. Voila. Well, her older sister, the six-year-old, um, wanting to kind of show her intellectual superiority, turned to her three-year-old sister and said, and what about Jesus? And the three-year-old said, Jesus is Jesus. And the six-year-old said, no, Jesus is a boy. And the three-year-old said, Jesus is Jesus. And I was sitting there and I thought, this is really interesting. I've got proto-feminist theology around the lunch table. <laughs> Didn't see this coming. Um, and then my six-year-old turned to me and said, well, Dad, what about angels? I mean, I thought I'd share this story. It's the Feast of the Guardian Angels. And so I paused for a minute um, and tried to gather my... How do you explain a spiritual substance to a six and a three-year-old, right, in a way that makes sense? So, but then fools rush in. I launched into this explanation. Well, angels, you know, they don't really have bodies like we do. They're spirits. They live in God's presence. They're his messengers and they serve him. And I went on like this for a couple of minutes. And then I paused and turned to my six-year-old and said, does that make sense? And she said, sure, dad. Angels don't have bodies. So they're just heads with wings. <laughs> So much for my effort to explain spiritual substance to my children. Um, post, I, I actually have a double postscript to the story. Ten years later, we are sitting at a church, St. Mary's Church in Upper Montgomery County, Maryland, at the celebration for a friend who is celebrating his 40th anniversary of ordination to the priesthood. And in this, if you've ever been in that little church, the sanctuary of the church is decorated with images of cherubs, which are depicted as heads with wings. And my now teenage daughter elbows me in the room, ribs and goes, Dad, Dad, I was right. <laughs> what do you say to a teenager? They're always right. So um, second postscript, my youngest daughter is getting married in that church a week from today. So... Sometimes life just goes full circle. It's funny how God's providence works. Why am I telling the story, though? Because in this talk, I want to focus on the image of God and the body. Yes, we image God in the operations and the activities of our soul, but we image God in and through our body as well. The Catechism in paragraph 362 says, the human person created in the image of God is a being at once corporeal and spiritual. The biblical account expresses this reality in symbolic language when it affirms that 
Quote, then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, quoting Genesis 2-7. Father Jordan walked us through the, the account of creation this morning. Man, whole, the catechism continues, whole and entire is therefore willed by God. Um, and in 364, the catechism says, the human body shares in the dignity of the image of God. It is a human body precisely because it is animated by a spiritual soul. And it is the whole human person that is intended to become, in the body of Christ, a temple of the spirit. So our human body, like all of creation, is good. It's made by God for a specific purpose. The catechism also tells us that we cannot despise our bodily life and we should hold our bodies in honor because these bodies are the bodies that God is going to raise on the last day. So our bodies have an eternal destiny. The bodies of the baptized are temples of the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do in this talk is to just think a little bit about and try to unpack well, what are some of the ways our bodies um, participate in the image of God within the human person. And one of the ways I'm going to do this is I'm going to draw on um, the teaching of St. John Paul II in his catechesis known as the theology of the body. Um, this was a series of weekly general audiences given as a general catechesis to the church given over five years um, toward the beginning of John Paul II's pontificate. It is not, as some popularizing commentators will sometimes describe it, primarily a gospel of sex. The theology of the body is an anthropology. It is an understanding of the human person um, that also contains within itself a very profound commentary on and a very deep reading of scripture. So it's reflecting on the reality of the human person um, in light of revealed truth that God communicates to us. John Paul II, in these catecheses, draws on his training and work as a professional philosopher, um, trained in a method of philosophy called phenomenology, which is kind of a rigorous reflection on experience, but brings that to bear on the biblical text to try to shed light on the experiences there and described in biblical narrative. Father Jordan talked about how Genesis is a story. It's a narrative. And if we look at the two stories of creation, Genesis 1 and then the first three verses of chapter 2, versus the rest of Genesis 2 and 3, the story of another story of creation and the fall, the second account, Genesis 2 and 3, we see really is a narrative, whereas Genesis 1 is a much more kind of deliberate, stylized, theological description of God's creation of the world in seven days. So he focuses on the second of those creation accounts, the old, probably the older of the two. Um, so let me walk through a little bit of that analysis, um, kind of using St. John Paul II, let me use John Paul II's commentary to help us kind of walk through a little bit of the text of Genesis and think about what does it teach us about the way in which our bodies participate 
in the imaging of God. And this is not exhaustive. This is just suggestive of, of a couple of ways we can see this. And then I want to add one more piece at the end. So for, for uh, St. Thomas, uh, like Aristotle, all of the knowledge that we acquire, all of the knowledge that we have in our intellect is acquired through our bodies, through our sense experience, through our bodies. Um, we do not have innate ideas. We are not born with innate ideas in our mind. St. John Paul II points out this is true of our first parents, as described in Genesis 2 as well. Um, they come to an understanding of the meaning of themselves, their bodies, the world, precisely through their bodily encounter with the world, with each other, and with the other creatures God has made. In his reading of the second story of creation in Genesis, John Paul II mentions three original experiences, original solitude, original unity, and original nakedness. I want to focus on the first two of these um, and what they can teach us, but I, it will be by way of, I'll mention the third by way of illusion. Um, the data for the first of these experiences, original solitude, um, is found primarily in Genesis 2, 15 through 21. So 2, 15, God uh, takes the man whom he's created, places him in the Garden of Eden, uh, and then he gives him a specific command. And Father Jordan mentioned this earlier. Um, You're free to eat of any of the trees of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The, the day you eat of it, you, are, you, are, you will surely die. Um, and then we get this really puzzling statement on the part of the narrator. Um, it, is not good, uh, it is not good for the man to be alone, which when we read that in juxtaposition to Genesis 1, where we heard over and over again, everything God made is good, is good, is very good. How can something in creation be not good? Well, that's part of what John Paul II is going to reflect on. And then after that, we get this little interlude in Genesis 2, 19 to 21, where God creates animals, leads them to the man who gives them names, which is a sign of authority. He can grasp the essence of what they are and express that. So John Paul II says, to understand solitude, we have to, first of all, adopt what he calls the hermeneutics of the gift. And Father Jonah touched on this in his talk to us last night. We have to realize that to understand the reality of who we are as created beings, creation is a gift. Everything around us is a gift. God doesn't owe us existence. God calls us into existence out of a free act of gener generosity and love. So God brings us into being. God creates this world. Um, God gives us the capacity to know him and to freely respond to him. Subjectivity, self-determination. Again, we're the, 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 some of the powers of our soul that we talked about this morning. But we come to discover that precisely through our bodies. Because think about, think about this account. God creates the man. He places him in the garden. The man realizes that of all the creatures around him, 
Only he is a self-aware subject. God creates these animals and he's able to name them. But none of these animals are the, in Genesis 2.18, when God says it's not good for the man to be alone, I will create a suitable partner for him. None of the animals can be this suitable partner. None of them have this self-awareness and ability to respond freely. He does. He is a person. They're not. Other creatures have purpose and value. They're living things made by God, but only his body expresses his reality as a person. Only he is not just a something, but a someone, as we heard the catechism say this morning. Um, so he comes to recognize that he is the subject of a covenant. He is the partner of the absolute. God invites him into this relationship. The other creatures of the world whom he's given dominion over, as Father Jordan told us, are, don't share in that royal representation, that that authority of God within creation that he does. So he comes to recognize his own uniqueness and the gift that that is. He has the capacity to respond to God, but he comes to all of this awareness through his body. The body is how he comes to recognize his own reality as a person by encountering the bodies of other creatures which are living and good and creatures of God, but not persons. So one of the refrains that John Paul II articulates over and over in the catechesis is the body expresses the person. The body is a window into the person. The body is <clears throat> not just a screen on which we project or perform an identity. That's one of the errors of contemporary gender ideology. It views our bodies as simply a screen on which to project an identity instead of a window into the person and as a self-aware subject made in the image of God. The command that God gives the man, John Paul II says in, in 2.16.17, is an invitation to a covenant relationship. God sets a limit on the relationship. You're free to eat from any of the trees, but not this one. This is how you can respond to me. This is how you can relate to me. So he is, he's addressed by God and invited into this covenant relationship, but he's given the power to determine himself and his own destiny. So if he chooses to rebel against God, as we heard earlier, then he chooses death. He chooses separation from God. In a later document commenting on the same text of Genesis, this is um, John Paul's encyclical Veritatis Splendor, his document on the splendor of truth. Um, in section 35, he writes, commenting on Genesis 2, 16 and 17, with this imagery, Revelation teaches that the power to decide what is good and what is evil does not belong to man, but to God alone. The man is certainly free in as much as he can understand and accept God's commands. And he possesses an extremely far-reaching freedom since he can eat from every tree of the garden. But this freedom is not unlimited. It must halt before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for it is called to accept the moral law given by God. So we have to accept 
in accepting the gift of our own reality as creatures, which God freely gives to us, we also have to accept the limit of being a creature. We have to accept the limits God sets for us in inviting us to respond to him. So our first parent, um, Adam, in the garden, comes to this awareness of his own reality as a person precisely through his body, precisely through his encounter with the world around him. But at the same time, in Genesis 2.18, we hear another dimension of this solitude. It is not good for the man to be alone. And again, that's, that's jarring because we've already read in Genesis 1 over and over again how, how God sees all of creation as fundamentally good. So what is it that's not good? It is not good for the man to be alone. He cannot realize himself. He cannot fulfill himself as a person, as a solitary being. He's created for more than that. So the theology of the body teaches us the body expresses the person. It's a window into the depth of our reality as persons. But second, the body is a pointer toward communion. The body orients us toward communion with others. And I, I should say, before I pass on to um, his treatment of original unity, that everything that I said, by the way, describing the man, Adam, in the biblical text, is true of the woman, too, even though she hasn't been created yet. So this experience of solitude, John Paul II is clear, des describes equally the experience of women and men. Women are free, self-aware subjects, too, possessed of an irreducible dignity, called into a covenant relationship to God, given the capacity to respond to God. Um, so this is true of our reality as persons. And, and in that sense, it's kind of deeper than the reality of sexual difference. It's prior, in a sense. It belongs in a certain sense, he says, from our very nature as human. But again... It is, it is not good for the man to be alone. We need, we, we need this, in the words of Genesis, this helper who corresponds to us. And when we hear this language, helper, right, in our, with our ears, we think, well, a helper means someone who is less than the one whom they help, who is secondary in some sense. But the Hebrew is there, has no connotation of that kind of inferiority. Um, God is often named as the help or helper of Israel or the just person in the Psalms or in Deuteronomy and elsewhere. So to be a help is not to be less than. To be a help is to give aid to the one helped in realizing their purpose, realizing the, their, what we would call vocation. And so God's answer to the existential dilemma of solitude, that it is not good, is to create another. Another who is like the man, yet irreducibly different from him. And this is described rather briefly in Genesis 2, 23 and 24. Um, after casting this deep covenant sleep on the man, God takes out one of his ribs, closes up the place with flesh, and then builds this into a woman, then leading her to the man, Genesis 2.22, the man responds with a little poem of joy. This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because out of 
her man, this one has been taken. John Paul II says the man rejoices because now he's encountered another body that expresses the person. It's not like the body of animals. This is the body of another human person, a self-aware subject, a body which is like his own and yet wonderfully different than his own. Um, and in un encountering and meeting her, he for the first time comes to a deeper understanding of the meaning of his own body. And the Hebrew text reflects this, right? This one shall be called woman, Isha, because out of man, Ish, she's been taken. So the wordplay, this is the first time these gender-specific pronouns are deployed in Genesis. Before this, it's just Adam, the, the human, the, the, the man in the generic sense. But now he recognizes who he genuinely is. John Paul II calls this the spousal meaning of the body. Our bodies as male and female are oriented toward each other. They disclose each other's meaning. They are relational. Our sexually differentiated bodies only are intelligible in light of one another. This is what he means by the spousal meaning of the body. He says in the his theology of the body catechesis, they communicate based on the communion of persons in which they become a mutual gift for each other through femininity and masculinity. In reciprocity, they meet, reach in a particular way, a particular understanding of the meaning of their own bodies. Again, this, this is the spousal meaning of the body, they, which they discover. She discovers the meaning of her feminine body in him. He discovers the meaning of his masculine body in her. So the body expresses the person. The body is a window into the depths of who we are as persons, as incommunicable, self-aware subjects made by God. But the body and the sexually differentiated body is itself a sign pointing us toward love and communion with one another. We are not created to be solitary beings. So John Paul will say, man becomes the image of God, not only through his own humanity, but also through the communion of persons. So whereas St. Augustine, to locate the image of God in the human person, turned inward to the powers, the operations of the human soul, and St. Saint, Saint Thomas follows him there. John Paul II, not disagreeing with that, of course, says we can also turn outward and see the image of God in this call to communion that is inscribed in our very duality as male and female. When we give ourselves, we give our bodies, our sexually differentiated bodies. And notice this is true in the life of the church. Um, when we enter into marriage, orders, religious life, we do so as a man or as a woman. Christians, it's, it's also true in other kinds of Christian commitment and self-gift. Friendship, right? We're, we enter into our relationships as body persons, as sexually differentiated persons. True, it's true in martyrdom too. Christian self-gift is lived through the body. When we give our bodies, we give ourselves. The deep hunger we have for friendship and love ultimately is a hunger for God. 
and a pointer to him. The hunger that we have for communion on the human level, the love of friendship, the love of friends, the love of a spouse in marriage is a participation in and a pointer to the deeper union with God for which we hunger. I mentioned this morning the famous text from August, the beginning of Augustine's Confessions. You've made us for yourself, O Lord. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Ultimately, the only thing that can fully satisfy the, the desires of our heart are, is the infinite love of God. But that love finds a participation and an anticipation in human love, in human friendship. But even the most intense form of human friendship, the one flesh union of marriage, cannot fully satisfy that hunger of our hearts, which is ultimately satisfied only in God. St. Augustine says, we are called to use the things of the world and love God for his own sake. Other persons, friends, family, um, other human beings, we love in, in light of God. We love them in light of their final end and our final end. In other words, when we love a human friend or we love a human spouse, we love that person as a human person, but not as the one who can fully satisfy all the desires of our heart. So the body expresses the person. The body is a sign pointing us toward communion, the communion of love with one another, but ultimately the communion of love, which we're called to as Christians with God. Let me mention one other thing, um, just one other area um, where we can think about the way in which the body participates in the image of God. Our bodies can and do directly impact our spiritual lives. When we engage in forms of bodily asceticism or self-discipline, it can help direct our minds and wills toward God and reorder our passions away from sinful attachments. Let's take just one example um, in terms of bodily asceticism. Take the discipline of fasting, which the church recommends to us in the great season of conversion other, at other times as well. Um, in the medieval church, we had Lent and then we had two little Lents, Advent and Whitsun Week. Um, Whitsun Week is the week following Pentecost, following the Easter feast and the feasting of Pentecost, uh, the church felt we needed a week of fasting to kind of reacclimate to ordinary time. We, we tend not to observe Whitsun Week much these days. If you say Whitsun Week, a few high church Anglicans will know what you're talking about. Most, most Catholics will just scratch their heads and say, what, what? Anyway, so, <laughs> um, but the church gives us these seasons of conversion to remind us that this is this kind of conversion, this kind of turning, reorienting our lives toward God is part of our Christian life, part of our Christian identity. And one of the ways in which we do that is through fasting. In, in Lent, the church recommends three great disciplines, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So St. John Paul II commenting on fasting during one of his Angelus messages during Lent of 1996, said this, penitential fasting is obviously something very different from a therapeutic diet. Um, back to our discussion of this morning. But in its own way, it can be considered therapy for the soul. 
In fact, practiced as a sign of conversion, it helps one in the interior effort of listening to God. Fasting is to reaffirm to oneself what Jesus answered Satan when he tempted him at the end of his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Unquote. St. Thomas gives us an even fuller explanation of why fasting is important and why it's actually virtuous in the sense that it is productive of virtue in us. In, in his Summa Theologiae, in the second part of the second part, St. Thomas says, an act is virtuous through being directed by reason to some virtuous, the, the original there is honestum, good, now, this is consistent with fasting because fasting is practiced for a threefold purpose. So why do we fast? Three reasons, St. Thomas says. First, in order to bridle the lusts of the flesh. Wherefore, St. Paul says, in fasting, in chastity, since fasting is a guardian of chastity. For according to Jerome, Venus is cold when Ceres and Bacchus are not there. That is to say, Lust is cooled by abstinence in meat and drink. So fasting helps us detach from inordinate desire for pleasure. Sexual desire is not bad. God created us with bodies to be attracted to one another. But concupiscence, the disorder created in us by sin, draws us to those desires in an inordinate, that is a disordered way. Fasting helps break the hold that that kind of disordered desire has on us. It helps us achieve interior freedom. Um, John Paul II will say, ultimately, really, it's only the chaste man or woman who's capable of real love. And regardless of the state in life, because only the chaste person has the interior freedom to give him or herself in love fully and freely. Back to St. Thomas. So first reason for fasting in order to bridle the lusts of the flesh, bridle disordered desire, to redirect our desire toward things that are genuinely good. Second, St. Thomas says, we have recourse to fasting in order that the mind may arise more freely to the contemplation of heavenly things. Hence, it's related of Daniel in Daniel 10, that he received a revelation from God after fasting for three weeks. So Fasting, it disposes us to better hear God, right? Think of Jesus fasting in the desert and his response to, to Satan. Man does not live by bread alone. Fasting opens us to hunger for God's word and disposes us to hear that word more clearly, more fully. And then back to St. Thomas, thirdly, in order to satisfy for sins, wherefore it is written in Joel, be converted to me with all your heart in fasting, weeping, and mourning. And the same is declared in, by Augustine in a sermon when he says, fasting cleanses the soul, raises the mind, subjects one's flesh to the spirit, renders the heart contrite and humble, scatters the clouds of concupiscence, quenches the fires of lust, and kindles the light of true chastity. So fasting helps detach our hearts from sinful preferences, desires, and it heals the wounds that our own sins and the sins of others and original sin have made in us. It frees us 
um, from some of that, some of the harm um, within us. It is really important to note, and I cannot underscore this enough, that we do not fast because we hate our bodies or we're trying to escape them or conquer them. Um, again, that's a, that's a Gnostic understanding. Our bodies are not evil, things that have to be overcome. Again, our bodies are, they have an eternal destiny. They share in the dignity of the image of God in us. So we are not trying to overcome our bodies. Again, gender ideology is a great example of contemporary Gnosticism, trying to overcome the body and write an identity apart from the body. The profession of the early church was caro salutis cardo. The flesh is the hinge of salvation. Tertullian said that in the third century. What did he mean by that? The flesh is the hinge of salvation. It means a lot of things when we think about the Christian faith. The flesh of Christ is the instrument, human flesh of Christ, by which God saves us and invites us to share in his own life of grace as a communion of persons. Christ's risen, glorified body is the means by which he communicates that life of grace to us in the sacraments. That divine life takes root in us and transforms us as whole persons, not just our souls, but our bodies as well. The body of a Christian is made a temple of the Holy Spirit in baptism, and it becomes a tabernacle every time we receive the Eucharist. This earthen vessel of our body, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 4, has Again, an eternal destiny, and therefore an inestimable dignity. This is why St. Paul is absolutely emphatic in his teaching that what we do with our bodies matters. That's both a metaphysical pun and a moral truth. What we do with our bodies matters. Our bodily deeds can either express what Paul calls in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh, and exclude us from the kingdom of God, or they can manifest what he says in Galatians 5 are the fruits of the Spirit, right? Of a life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. When St. Paul warns us about the flesh, sarks in the original Greek, and its works, he is referring to the whole person under the power and influence of sin. He is not referring to our physical bodies. Again, it's this body in the case of a Christian, that becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. So don't turn St. Paul into a Gnostic when you read him. That's a helpful suggestion for your, your prayer lives, your life of study. St. Paul is not a Gnostic. He does not think our bodies are evil or our bodies the problem. But he does remind us that our bodies are meant to glorify God. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6 after telling us why we should not take our bodies this, these temples of the Holy Spirit and join them to the bodies of a temple prostitute in ritual prostitution, which apparently some in the Corinthian community were doing. So Paul says, no, glorify God in your bodies. We can only do that with the help of grace. But taking the life of, receiving the life of grace and then living it out in our bodily action, our bodily behavior is the basic demand of all Christian morality. We're called to live the life of the Spirit, life in the Spirit, in our day-to-day -day bodily actions. 
and interactions with one another. So the fruit of the love of God, which we talked about this morning, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, one of the fruits of that is practical love of neighbor, which is expressed precisely in and through our bodies. The church recommends to us the corporal works of mercy, right? Deeds of bodily charity shown to others, feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty. By the way, I received a couple of corporal works of mercy here <laughs> in this talk today, and I'm very grateful. Um, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, visiting the sick, visiting the imprisoned or ransoming captives, burying the dead. In Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, our Lord tells us when we do things like that, when we visit those in prison, when we, when we feed the hungry, when we give, give shelter to the home, we do those things for him. Whatsoever you did for the least of one of my brothers, you did for me in touching the bodies of others, in caring for the bodies of others. We care for Christ. St. John Chrysostom said this over and over again in his homilies um, when he was bishop in Antioch, uh, uh, preacher in Antioch and then bishop in Constantinople, telling the wealthy members of his congregation, you want to touch the body of Christ? You can touch him by touching the homeless people lying in the gutter outside of our cathedral when you leave the liturgy. We encounter Christ in the person of the poor and what St. Teresa of Calcutta called the, distre the distressing disguise of the poor. We, that's Jesus, and we're called to respond to him. So when we receive the life of grace, this life of love, that's meant to transform our lives, including our bodily life and behavior. Again, that's, that's basic to Christian morality. Um, so we receive love in order to love in turn, to love God, to love others. And that love is the key. John Paul II, in his first encyclical, um, titled The Redeemer of Man, Redemptor Hominis, said at one point, man cannot live without love. He remains incomprehensible to himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love. But what John Paul II would go on to tell us in the theology of the body and what the church's um, recommendations of bodily asceticism in the spiritual life tell us is that we give that love, we show that love as well as receive it precisely through our bodies, right? The body is how we, exp we experience the love of God, not just in our souls, but in our bodies. And we give that love in turn to others through our bodily behavior treatment of others. So that's, that's, our, that's our challenge. Um, let's just conclude with a prayer. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and it shall be, world without end. Amen. Holy Spirit, amen. Floor is open. Yes, please. Um, so you talk about how the meaning of the body is kind of realized in the other person, like this relation, relational sense. Um, so how is that meaning of the body kind of realized 
in like the religious vocation or like the celibate life as much as it is in the married the married life. Yeah, great. So the question is, um, if the body, if bodily self gift is realized, if self gift is realized through the body, how do we see that reflected in religious life, um, consecrated life, a religious celibacy? John Paul II is very emphatic that um, marriage and religious celibacy, rightly understood, are not competitive with one another. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin. Because in both cases, we give our bodies, right? We, we commit ourselves in and through our bodies as a man, as a woman, in entering into religious life, entering into holy orders, entering into marriage. So the body is precisely the means by which we make a sense, what John Paul will call echoing the words of the council, make the sincere gift of ourselves in love to another. So marriage and consecrated celibacy are both forms of bodily self-gift. They both affirm the body in that way and they're lived out precisely in fidelity through the body. Um, a husband and wife commit themselves to each other in faithful, uh, indissoluble love uh, for one another, a man or woman entering religious life, a man entering into priesthood, gives his body, the, the woman religious gives her body, in commitment to God to practice perpetual continence as a sign, as a witness to um, the transformation of the world in Christ, but then they give themselves as a man or a woman in care for other members of their community and the Christian community around them. So you don't have one bodily vocation and, and then you have non-bodily states in life. Christian states in life are always lived in and through the body. And marriage and celibacy both correspond to one another in important ways. John Paul II will also say that it's not accidental that in the church's spiritual tradition and mystical tradition, Religious life celibacy is often at times described in nuptial terms. It's a response to Christ the bridegroom who calls the individual to himself to give him or herself in this, in this faithful and exclusive union, um, which they undertake with their vows. So again, not mutually, mutually illuminating and not competitive realities. Wonderful question. Yes, please. I'm not sure if I'm like entirely understanding. Are you saying that like the only religious component in life is either through marriage or through No, I am not. Uh, okay. That that is a wonderful question. I just let me to make sure let right. me no no. Thank you. Let me repeat it first and then try to respond. So, am I saying that the only way you're fulfilled in life is through either marriage or some form of um, consecrated celibacy virginity? No. Um, we had a great conversation around the lunch table on this very topic. So um, for those of you who heard it already, I apologize. But <laughs> I, I've, I've given talks um, at diff in different places around the country, and I have been shocked to have students come to me and say, well, at my Catholic college, which I will not name, but it's one that is universally recognized as very Catholic and having this <laughs> clear Catholic identity, I was taught that I have no vocation until I either get married or enter into religious life or priesthood. 
And my response to that was and is, that's not true. That's misleading and dangerous because every Christian has a vocation. And that vocation is to holiness. That vocation is given to us in baptism. We're made temples of the Holy Spirit. We're called to live lives that reflect that. Whether we are married, whether we are celibate, whether we are committed single Christians, we are called to live out that baptismal vocation to holiness. When we enter into a specific state in life, if that's what we discern is God's call for us, our fundamental baptismal vocation is then redescribed. Now my path to holiness is learning how to love this other person and help her get to heaven and to allow her to help me get to heaven and our children get to heaven. So my vocation isn't changed. It's just lived differently. If I, enter in, if I were to enter into religious life, I'll let the guys in white speak to this better than I can here. But right now my vocation is to learn how to live out this vocation to holiness by loving the members of my community and serving them. Right. So there, there are three basic states in life, John Paul II says, lay, clerical, and religious. Right. But there's only one Christian vocation, and that's holiness. Single people living a single Christian life in the world, have that vocation to holiness, and their Christian lives are not on hold until they commit themselves to a state in life. That's a complete misperception. Thank you for the question. It's a great question. Other questions? Yes, please. Um, is there any dissolve attention for me? Because God says, you know, it is not good for man to be alone. And it's like, well, why is that if God is you know, at that time, he's fully in relationship with man, right? There's no rift between man and God at that point. So why is God not enough in some sense? And that's a, that's a wonderful question. So the question is, why is it that God says it's not good for the man to be alone, given that the man um, in Genesis 2 is already in relation to God, already they have this covenant relationship between them. Why isn't God enough? Um, and in one sense, God is enough and God is more than enough, right? But one of the things we need to, it, it, it can be challenging for us to, to, to think about is the, the generosity of God, right? Um, yes, God is enough. Um, and yet God himself is a community, a communion of persons, three divine persons, each of whom is completely and fully God and an eternal communion of love. In creating human beings in his image and likeness, God designed us so that we wouldn't come in just one version, right? Human nature exists in two fundamental and really irreducible personal forms, male and female. And we're created for a broader communion. So that diversity of persons in a unity of nature is itself a reflection of who God is as an eternal communion of persons. John Paul II very deliberately called both the Holy Trinity and the Christian family of husband, wife, child, a communio personarum, a communion of persons in which you have this communion of love in which each person lives in a relationship of self-gift to the others. So it's God's generosity that he willed that we wouldn't simply relate to him as monads, but that we would relate to him 
in communion with one another. Um, so, and that gen that generosity of God's love is, in a sense, a reflection of His own nature as a communion of love. One wonderful question, really good question. I don't get questions like this from my seminarians, so <laughs> you guys are good. Uh, sorry, that that that, that, <laughs> should, that should get deleted. <laughs> Some of them are going to hear this and yeah. come after yeah. me. Uh, no, don't worry. Don't worry. Um, yes, please. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, epistemology in Aquinas. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, for him, knowledge is acquired through our bodies. I'm thinking here of Christ um, in the Summa where he read that ideas, um, by, by ideas are understood as form of things apart from things themselves. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of disjointure in so uh, the question has to do with um, how St. Thomas's epistemology works and how we come to know things. So St. Thomas is, is clear, and, and again, he follows Aristotle on this point, that we are not born with innate ideas. At birth, our minds are a tabula rasa. They're an empty slate. All of the ideas, all of the thoughts in our mind that we process in intellection, in reasoning, are acquired through our experience of the world around us and our, our um, acquisition of knowledge from things. And ultimately, in the case of, in the case of what, again, what he calls sacra doctrina, from revelation, from God himself disclosing himself to us. But so when we know something for Thomas, we, yeah, there is a, there's an abstractive component, right? Our minds recognize this is a desk. Right? Desks come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes, right? big desks, little desks, desks that you can stand up at, desks you have to sit down, right? Desks are, yet our minds recognize, oh, that's a desk, right? How do they do that? Our minds do that because they recognize the essence of the thing, the form of the thing, and abstract it from the thing. Aquinas thinks, unlike Plato, who thinks the idea, the nature, the Ideas of things are somewhere outside of space and time and material world is just copies. Aquinas, like Aristotle, thinks, no, the essence or form is in the thing itself. So it's through our sense experience that we come to a knowledge of things, but then we can abstract that knowledge, compare that knowledge, and think speculatively about the natures of things and then about their causes and then about their final causes. Um, in God himself. You look like you want to follow up. Well, I was going to yeah. ask, what about natural reason or theoretical reason, which Aquinas does deal with in, in, in some sense? How should we think about natural reason? Is, is that knowledge for him as well? Um, can you say a little bit more what you mean so by... Solving a math problem or... Sure. Numbers? No, that's... Um, so solving a math problem. Sure, that's reasoning, right? That's re We use... Logic, we proceed by way of logic, by, by way of deduction to think, think things through. Um, and he will say that actually we do that when we do theology as well. Theology proceeds by argument by ra and rational conclusion. It's just that we derive the first principles from revelation, from God's revelation of himself. So it's a higher source of knowledge than we can simply acquire from the knowledge of things in the world around us. But we have that because God has chosen to disclose himself to us. But even our what you're referring to here is our natural reason. For Thomas, 
week, and I'll go back to the famous uh, creation and the egg talk we had last night. For St. Thomas, that ability is itself a participation. We, we have that ability to think, to re- because we participate, God holds us in being. And so when we recognize truth, when we compare ideas and, and reason to a conclusion and reason rightly, it, it's God, it's, God is the one who holds us in being, who gives us the, the uh, ability to exist in order to think those things through and to have the knowledge and the, and the wisdom to do that. So we, yeah, we, we participate um, in a, a, a small fragment of God's own knowledge of reality because of God's generosity in creating us. One more question. One more question. Yes. Um, so going back to that, what you said about how we do not have innate ideas in epistemology, um, how does that compare then with, like in Romans, where we're told that the law was written upon our hearts? How do we know what's the difference between good and evil then if we have no innate ideas mm. to be able to discern like morality? Great question. So the, the question concerns what St. Thomas in the later tradition will call the natural law. Um, and how is that different from innate ideas, the, this law written on our hearts that Paul references in Romans 2, 14, 15? Um, so so for, for Thomas, the natural law, he says it in, in a very concise form. The natural law is the participation of the rational creature in the eternal law. So we, in recognizing um, certain truths about the way we are made, the way we are ordered, specifically the truths of our nature, the things that we are inclined to as human beings, to maintain our existence, to be alive, to um, procreate and educate and raise children, like, and Thomas will say, like the animals do, but we do it through reason, not through instinct, to live in society, to have societies like family and state, and to seek truth, especially the truth about God. We can recognize, our minds can recognize those inclinations of our nature, and then our practical reason can from them derive certain fundamental principles of action, right? That we should worship only God and acknowledge only him, that we should not kill human beings made in the image of God, that we should respect fidelity and merit, right? So for Thomas, the Ten Commandments are examples of primary precepts of the natural law. Those are not innate ideas. Those are ideas that our practical reason can discern from reflecting on the structure of the way in which we are made, these inclinations of our nature, which we're ordered to for our fulfillment, and which the virtues enable us to per- pursue in a consistent and stable way. So not in a natural law, yes, it's, it's, it's the ability to understand the moral implications of our human nature. But for Thomas, that's, that's not innate ideas. That's our reason in action, looking at God's creation. Wonderful question. And we'll end on that note. <laughs>